Well, hey, it's such a privilege to be with you guys. I always love getting to come down here and hang out with Antioch in College Station. As Billy said, my name's Drew. I live up in Waco with my wife and our four kids. And I have the honor of serving with the Antioch Movement Support Office. And for those who don't know about, about the Antioch Movement, we have about 50 churches here in the United States, just shy of that. And collectively, we've sent out nearly 300 missionaries that serve all around the world. And so, yeah, it's an incredible thing what God's doing. And I just, I, I feel like I've pinched myself just the joy, the honor, the privilege of getting to partner with our churches, with our missionaries and help support them so they can walk in the fullness of what God's called them to do as we engage the Great Commission together. Uh, it's been a big, uh, big couple of weeks for us. Last week, for the first time ever, we had a gathering in Latin America um, where historically we have not had a lot of teams there, but we now have five teams serving in Latin America. We pulled them all together. God has spoken to us so much about what's going on um, in that part of the world and just seeing the first fruits of that. And I know maybe some of you, that's part of your heart. We'd love to talk what it would look like to get you there. And then next week, we're gathering in Europe with our teams and, and Europe, the Middle East and Africa, we're pulling them together. And this is, it's really significant. Um, it's the first time we've been able to gather with all of them in four years. Um, and on top of that, obviously, there's a lot going on in the world, and many of them are serving in places that are affected. And so I would love your prayer, covet your prayer. You know, God met us really powerfully this summer as we've been gathering different groups around the world. It just feels like a spirit's being poured out in a fresh way for such a time as this. And please do pray for us and cover us. I know many uh, people that have been sent out, even from this church, will be there with us. So that's, that's coming up next week. So big couple of weeks um, and just the privilege of supporting our teams. Well, I got to say, it's a particular honor to be here in College Station. Um, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but you have a reputation in the Antioch movement, and it's a really good one. I, I, I'm not just saying this. I'm not just saying this to be nice. I'm not flattering you. I have people around the world pause me and say, "Can you go recruit people from College Station to come join our work?" Like they they single you out. And why? Because there is a reputation of people in this house who have a passion for Jesus. You love the Lord, are committed to his purposes. You have a work ethic. You don't complain. You put the kingdom of God first and you serve. And guess what? When that's who you are, people want to hang out with you. And so let me just say thank you. Thank you for modeling that. Thank you for setting that example. And on behalf of all my friends around the world, go join their teams because they want you. But hey, it's a privilege. It truly is a privilege to get to preach today. I'm excited to continue our foundation series, and topic today is the doctrine of humanity. Never preached a sermon on that before, but I'm actually really excited because what we're answering this morning is a question that I think most of us want to know, who are we? Who are we? I'm passionate about this. Who are we? And I'm passionate about it because I think we're living in a world that is providing competing answers to that question, who are we? And depending on how you answer that question will have profound ramifications for the rest of your life. Who are we at the core? There are competing voices today. Do you know that? There is a, a secular answer to this, that who you are is you are a cosmic accident, that there's nothing intrinsic to who you are other than the meaning that you make for yourself. So you've got to live true to yourself. You've got to go make and find your own purpose because there's not one that's assigned to you. You're not fundamentally good. You're not fundamentally bad. You just got to go make meaning in your own life. That's, that's one way to answer the question. And I think it's more prominent than we realize. But there's another way to answer the question. The, the Christian version of this is who you are, is you are a dearly loved child of God, created in his image, hopelessly marred by sin and redeemed into new life in the person of Jesus that's realized in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. 
So which one is it for us? Who are we? And I'm gonna spend the rest of our time digging into all of that, um, each one of those points. Who are we? Because I am convinced that how we answer this changes everything. It's like picture you're at a trail. There's a fork going this way. There's a fork going that way. And it's either one or the other. We can't try to live in the middle of those two answers. We have to decide who are we? Pretty obvious what I think the answer is, but we'll unpack that here in a minute. The way we're going to do this today is we're going to be going through John's gospel. And in particular, we're going to look at the very beginning and we're going to look at the end to answer the question, who are we? So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter one. I'm going to read the first five verses. It says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So how does this help us answer the question? First of all, this is where the English language fails us because it talks about the word in this passage. Now, when I think of word, what I think of is something that I speak or something that I write. But in the Greek language, word is, is logos, and it means something different. I mean, it includes that, but it's much bigger than that. It refers to God's intentions from the beginning of the world. It's like God's order, God's design, God's purposes, God's wisdom that's realized in the world. That's what it means to talk about God's word. And so track with what he's saying here. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. So what does that mean? That God's word, God's purposes are eternal. They're not something that came into being at the beginning of creation, but they pre-exist. They, they've been there from the beginning of time itself before the beginning of time is God's word. But then John, John takes it further. The word is not just that, but the word is actually God himself. And then if you could skip ahead to verse 14, we, we hear the shocking reality that the word of God was made flesh, that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, Billy preached about, about this very thing, about the doctrine of Christ or the fancy word Christology. What he's talking about here is that Jesus is fully God, fully man. And what's the relevance for us in, in our story today? You know, you might be asking the question, Drew, I thought you were talking about who are we and all you're talking about is Jesus. And yes, that's the relevance for us. Because I stand with theologians throughout history that have said who we are, we answer the question by looking at who Jesus is. That when we look at him, we discover ourselves. When we just look at ourselves, it's empty. But when we look to him, we identify who we are. Who we are is found in who Jesus is, God who became man. That's why we start with where we started last week. We start with God, not with ourselves. But you'll notice something here in this passage that I think is really powerful. That the language of John chapter one is very similar to the language of Genesis chapter one. And this is an incredibly important point for us today. And if you're familiar with the story in Genesis, in Genesis chapter one, it's the story, it's this poetic imagery of God creating the earth. And it starts off in the same way, in the beginning, God. And Genesis goes on to say how God created the earth. So what's John saying? In the beginning, God. And once again, it's the word of God. So if in Genesis, it's God speaking the earth into existence through his word. In Genesis, I'm sorry, in John, it's God who is the word become man, recreating the earth. 
It's a story of God making all things new. And, and what do we see? That in the word, there is life. And that life is the light of mankind. Now, if you read Genesis, what happens on the first day? God creates light. It's the very first act of creation. He separates light from darkness. And then on the sixth day, the very end of creation, this is the high point of creation. God creates life and it's us. It's you. It's me. We are the crown jewel of God's creation. And so what's the story here? It's the story of the word become man who's recreating the earth. I just think it's so cool. But to understand this, I want to take a moment and get back into Genesis a little bit, because I think it helps us to answer the question of who are we? So you can, we're going to take just a little bit of a detour here. Go to Genesis chapter one, and you can read verse 26. So John's talking about creation. I'm sorry, we're going to go to verse 27. God's talking about creation here. Who are we? And in creation, what does it say? Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So who are we? We are people that are created in the image of God. Like, that's one of those things you just think about, you know, and we say it, it's easy to say, but if, I, if we could just pause and consider the reality that we've been created in God's image, I mean, it just blows me away. You know, I think we live in a world where it's so hard to identify, like, do I have purpose? Do I have worth? Like, what makes me special? Uh, let me answer it for you. You are created in the very image of the living God who formed the universe with his breath. How's that identity for you? <laughs> I mean, whoa, the dignity that this puts on every human being, a person created in the very image of creator God. Wow. You know, that's why Christians throughout history have affirmed the dignity of human life. And that's why we as a church, we are passionate about every single person as created in the image of God. That means every single person has an incalculable value and worth because of whose image they are created in. That means the unborn child. That means the very old. That means the very sick. That means those with severe cognitive disabilities. That even means our greatest enemies have dignity, value, and worth because they have been formed into the very image of God. And that means you, when you are questioning your identity, your purpose, your value, that means you have so much value and dignity because you've been made in God's very image. Don't ever let the enemy lie to you or pull you away from that. You have value and you have worth. I could not think of a greater compliment to give you than you've been fashioned into the image of God himself. I was trying to think of like, how, how do you explain this idea? It's just hard to wrap your head around. So I came up with a bad metaphor. You ready? Yes. It's bad because it doesn't do it justice, but it's as close as I can get. Think of a flag. What is a flag? It's a fabric and it's dye. But think of the way that we treat a flag with the dignity and the honor that we show it. Why? Because of what it represents. Think of a flag that's torn, a flag that's faded. Do we still show it honor and dignity? You bet we do. People give their lives for their flag because it's the value that sits behind the flag is what yeah. gives it yeah. its authority and it's what gives it its dignity. Yes. How much more so a human being created the image of almighty God has dignity and value, no matter how torn or faded or beat up, it is worthwhile. Come on. Come on. Who are you? 
You are dearly loved, created in the image of God. Well, keep going in Genesis. What does it say? Male and female, he created them. Right from the very beginning, the very first introduction, we're introduced to gender, and gender is a wonderful, beautiful thing that reflects the image of God. There's no way for me to do this justice while I'm also talking about everything else. So I want to highlight um, Antioch Waco, the team there, did a fabulous job digging deep into this. Obviously, it's a contested topic today. Um, Highlight, you know, just encourage you to go back and check that out. Um, Great sermon from a couple weeks ago. But for our purposes today, what I want to say is that men need women and women need men because together we reflect the image of God to this world. Equal value, equal worth, equal calling to reflect the image of God. It's a beautiful, good, holy thing that God created us and put us into our bodies. Third thing that we see here is that we are given a purpose, a vocation. What is it? We fill the earth and we subdue it. Now that can sound kind of intense, right? Like it, we, we think of that negatively, but this is before sin. It's not a negative thing. I, I think the best way to describe this in Genesis chapter two, it talks about God putting us into a garden. I think the best way to think about this is we're like God's gardeners. And what he's called us to do is he's called us to take the beauty of his creation and tend the wilderness of the earth and extend his garden over the earth. He's given us an, a calling and an assignment that the earth would be covered with his glory. Lastly, I didn't read this verse, but if you go to Genesis chapter two, verse eight, it talks about God breathing his very breath into us. The word for breath in Hebrew, ruach, is the same word for spirit. What God did is he formed us out of the matter of this world. He put us into material bodies, but we're not just material bodies like the secular story. We're filled with the spirit of God in his life. So who are you? You're all of that. Good start, right? But there's a problem. Because there's another element of who we are. And that's the next chapter in Genesis, in chapter three, that I also have to talk about today. Because who we are is we are dearly loved, created in the image of God with a purpose, and we are hopelessly marred by our sin. And Genesis chapter three tells the story first of Eve who is tempted, who doubts the goodness of God and eventually does the very thing God told her not to do. And then she goes and gets Adam and he does the same thing that Eve did. And together they turn their back on God and they choose to do things their own way. Now you probably know the word sin. It's a word we don't like to use in culture, but I think it's really important. I think it's kind of funny because I think sin is one of the most obvious things in our world, yet we don't like to talk about it. Maybe we should. Sin is not just the bad thing that you do, though it certainly includes that. Sin is a condition of the heart. It's almost like a cancer that metastasizes in us, that pulls us away from who God has called us to be and mars the image that he created us for. That's what sin represents. And when you read the Genesis 3 account, I'm not going to go through it all today, but what you discover is that it starts with unbelief and it ends with rebellion. It's us saying, I don't want to live according to the breath of God. I want to live in my own breath. I don't want to reflect God's image to the world. I want to set up my own image. I don't want to live under his authority. I want to assert my own. Sin is us saying we want to be our own gods. We don't want to live in communion with him according to his purpose. And sin also does not work. And if you fast forward, you see the terrible consequence of our sin In Genesis 3, it outlines it where man had this vocation to tend the garden of God. Instead, what happens is we're cast out into the wilderness where instead we have to work the hard ground and it's covered in thorns to find our life. 
It tells about how we were called, women were called to bear children into the world. And instead, this incredible gift to bear life ends up in pain. And ultimately, it talks about how death becomes our destiny, that all human beings in the end will die. And I think even as a symbol, no matter how much we try to to do things, to build things, it ultimately ends in futility because the sin is right there next to the goodness and it mars the purposes of God in this world. But even in the midst of the low point of scripture, there's hope because there's this promise that kind of this mysterious promise that one day the descendant of the woman will crush the head of the snake. So the enemy will be defeated. And right here in the story in Genesis chapter three, we see the mercy of God because what he does in Adam and Eve's shame of sin, God creates a covering for them and he covers them and clothes them. It points to the future of what will one day happen. So who are we? We are dearly loved in the image of God created for a purpose and we are hopelessly marred by our sin. Now I wanna pause and just once again, highlight the difference of the story that the world tries to tell us about who we are. Did you know that there's a gospel in our world that's not the gospel of Jesus? I call it the secular gospel. Here's my shorthand way of saying it, is live true to yourself. It's like, at the end of the day, for you to find your purpose and find life, you just have to live true to yourself and that's what's gonna give you your identity. I'm not saying it's all wrong. There's an element of that that's great, of understanding how God's made you and the creativity and the beauty of who he's uniquely called you to be. That's great, but it's not a good salvation message. Because what's behind it? Like, what what are we trying to say? What we're trying to say is that all you are is the material world. The word is naturalism, like you're a cosmic accident. And what that means is there's no intrinsic value one way or the other. So you're not sinful. There is no sin. You're just who you are. And if you want to have meaning in this life, you've got to make it for yourself. And the meaning that's in this life is only the meaning that you're able to give to yourself. So you have to live true to that interior sense of identity if you want to find purpose and value in this life. That is the secular gospel message. I'm not throwing stones because I don't know about you, but I am tempted to believe that message. It is the water we swim in in our world. It's like every commercial, not even just the movies, but the commercials in the football games are reinforcing that message that if you wanna find life and happiness and identity, you've gotta be free to live according to whoever you are, whatever identity you wanna give to yourself, and that's the only way that you can find your dignity. That's the message I see in this world. And friends, it ain't working. Anybody else notice that? It's not working. Why are we the most wealthy, peaceful, powerful, and healthy society that's ever existed on the face of the earth? Why are people falling apart? Like I could point to example after example after example. People are not okay. It's not our material circumstances. It's our beliefs. We've bought into the wrong idea of who we are. I'm not trying to diminish that there's pain in this world. Of course, there's a lot of it, even in this room. I'm just trying to say that we have it better than most other people have ever had it. And we're not doing very well. Maybe our gospel message is not saving us like we think it is. I could point to so many different things, but one I would highlight. In American culture, do you know today, loneliness is a pandemic. And that corresponds to all kinds of other negative outcomes. But loneliness is a specific group of people that are the most affected. You know who it is? American young adults. Globally. You can't blame technology because the rest of the world has technology. You can't blame COVID. The rest of the world had COVID. 
There is something in the beliefs that we have been sold in our society that is not leading us into the life that God intended for us to have. We've bought into the wrong gospel message. You know, I, I think about this and I just am sad for people. I'm sad for people. I'm grieved for us. Because what happens is when you buy into the, God, the wrong gospel message, when you reach difficulty, you double down on the wrong message. It's like continuing to eat the poison that was already killing you. Uh, it reminded me of something. I went camping many years ago on a Texas beach. Anybody ever done that before? It's a blast. It really is a blast. Because you can drive your car, go to a state park, drive right out onto the beach. You know, I was in um, South Padre Island, but like not the city part, the that the rural part of it, just drove out, found this spot. I'm all by myself on the beach, parked my car, set up my tent, have an awesome day. I didn't want to go through all the trouble of, of um, food. So I was going to drive back into town that night and I'm driving back in. I go get in my car, put it in a drive, hit the accelerator and it lurches forward, but it doesn't go very far. I'm like, uh-oh. So I, what do you do? You put it into reverse, right? Then you hit the accelerator again. I go backwards and guess what? I didn't go very far then. So I got a little nervous, so I put it back into drive and I hit the accelerator more. Then I put it into reverse and hit the accelerator more. And I keep doing that for a couple of minutes and now my car's not lurching anymore, it's just stuck. (laughs) So I finally clue into it, I get out and I look and my wheel is buried like this deep into the sand. Because you know what happened? Every time I hit the accelerator, the wheel spun like a shovel and dug me deeper into the sand. I started out stuck and then I got more stuck. And every time I tried to pull myself out of being stuck, I got myself stuck even worse. I dug my own hole. And my method for saving myself dug me deeper. And when I got out, that's when I realized I had a different problem that was even worse. You know what it was? The tide. Because I had parked at low tide. And now it was getting too high tide. And you know how you can kind of look and see how far the water's going to go? Yeah, past the car. Remember how I said it was rural and people weren't there? So I am picturing my little car floating out into the Gulf of Mexico. It's like a letter in the bottle going to Cuba, you know? And I'm like, going to hike my way home, you know? I mean, it was a terrible moment. But it was like exactly at that moment when I was helpless, this guy drove up in this like dually pickup truck. And he had a, (laughs) that's exactly right. Probably an Aggie, you know, like, let's be real. He drives up, this older man, and apparently he told me, he's like, yeah, this happens a lot. I drive up and down the beach trying to help people out. I felt like a moron because I was a moron. But he had this tow hitch at the front, this big old chain, and he pulled my car right out. When you're stuck... Sometimes you need somebody to pull you out and you're not able to pull yourself out. This is what I think is happening is we bought into the wrong answer to the question of who we are. And when it's not working, we just hit the accelerator more saying, well, if it's not working, I just need more freedom to do whatever I want. I need more freedom to cast off whatever it is that's holding me back from me realizing my own identity so I can be even more free. And instead we dig ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper because we're solving the wrong problem. But what if we need somebody to pull us out of the mess and that's what we need to realize our identity? Because that's the story that we find in scripture. Is a God who came to save us, who came to pull us out. What if the problem wasn't that you never had a purpose and you gotta make a meaning for yourself in the world, but the problem is in fact that you have intrinsic value and worth, but there's something inside of you that's keeping you from realizing it so you need a savior. What if that's the problem? 
That's the story of the gospel. I want to fast forward to John chapter 19. Now in a minute, we're going to read a little bit um, right at the end of John 19, and then we'll read into John 20. But I just want to highlight a few things from this. Because remember how I told you how John is telling how Jesus is recreating the world. And what you see in the crucifixion story of Jesus is you see him systematically going through the effects of our sin and undoing it in himself. The fancy theological term, if you want to like feel really cool, is recapitulation. Write that one down. But what, what are we saying? Jesus is systematically undoing the effect of our sin. Do you remember where Adam and Eve started their story? They were in the garden of God. But where do they end up? They end up in the wilderness. You remember how God gave man a vocation to tend his garden. But where do we end up? In the thorns. So where is Jesus when he is crucified? He is outside the city in the wilderness. And what's on his head? A crown of thorns. Do you remember how God gave Eve this calling to bring life into the world, but then said childbirth is going to be marred by pain. Who is at Jesus's side while he is being crucified? It is his mother enduring the pain of watching her son be tortured to death. Thing after thing of the created world that had gone wrong, Jesus is taking on to himself. Do you remember how I told you that God breathed his spirit into us on the sixth day and made us alive? What does Jesus do on the sixth day? The son of man himself, he breathes out his last breath. Thing after thing in creation, undone in the person of Jesus. He takes on every aspect of our humanity. He became like us. Why? So that we could become like him. As Jesus is being crucified, the Roman soldiers, if you read John's account, what they're doing is they're dividing his clothing. What does that mean? That means he is exposed on the cross. Do you remember what God did for Adam and Eve? He covered their shame so that Jesus would be exposed for us so that our shame could be covered. This is what he did for you. Thing after thing, the brokenness of this world. Jesus took on the worst of our humanity. He took on the penalty of our sin. He took on the cancer that was within us. He put it all into himself, into his own body, that curse. And then there, he breathed his last. John doesn't tell this in his gospel, but Matthew does. I think it's interesting that a creation that began with light during Jesus's crucifixion endured darkness. The final light of creation was snuffed out. Jesus died on the sixth day, the day that mankind was created. And then what happens on the seventh day? God rested just like he did in the first creation. Fortunately, our story doesn't end here. Because I want to bring you to John chapter 19. And I'm going to start reading in verse 41. All right. And as I'm reading all of these little things I've shared this morning, pay attention to detail. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one the Lord loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived, went into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen, and finally the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed, and they still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Moving on to verse 10, this is probably my favorite story in all of the Bible. The disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent to look over into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? And they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where they, you've put him and I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Hallelujah, amen. Did you catch the details? Jesus was crucified outside the city in the wilderness, but where did the resurrection take place? In a garden. When did it happen? If Jesus died on the sixth day of the week when God created man, if on the seventh day he rested, Jesus rose again when? On the first day. What time of day was it? It was dawn, right when light pierces through the darkness once again. This is the exact moment when God is recreating the world. Do you remember how God had to provide a covering for us because of our shame? How Jesus was exposed at the cross? Well, what's happening in the tomb? The linen, the burial cloth that cover our death are no longer needed. They're cast aside. Why? Because Christ is in a resurrected body. It's all done. Even down to the detail, how did Jesus appear to Mary? He's a gardener. We're restored back into our calling, in the person of Jesus, into a resurrected body, no longer marked by sin, no longer marked by the curse, and we're even given back our job. (laughs) It's amazing to me. God is so committed to who he created you to be that he was willing to become like you so that he could resurrect you, so that he could redeem you, so that he could restore you back into your identity and into your purpose. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is lost. Who are you? You are in Christ. Who are you? You are remade in the image of Jesus, no longer according to the pattern of Adam, the first man, but now according to the pattern of Jesus, the last man. And this is more true of you than anything else if you're in Christ. What an incredible privilege to be called God's children. It even gets better. I love the detail of this story. Did you notice who the first person was to see Jesus? It was Mary. At this time in Jewish history, women were not allowed to give testimony in court, but God chose a woman to give testimony to the resurrection. 
the most significant event that happened in human history. It was called to be Mary. And I can't help but think of Eve who was tempted and then went to Adam to said, come take this fruit. It was Mary who saw the resurrection and went to the disciples and said, I have seen the Lord. God is undoing the curse of sin. If you keep reading in John, it, it moves into the story of Peter. Do you remember Peter? Like Adam, Peter abdicated his responsibility and was not willing to stand tall and courageous at a moment when he needed to. He denied Jesus to him, his face. But instead of Peter being left under the weight and the curse of his sin, what does Peter do? He is restored. And that's John 21. Jesus restores him back into his calling. And I love Peter's response. Where Adam hid from God, what Peter did is he ran to the tomb. Where Adam hid from God, Peter jumped out of the boat and swam to the shore, even though his friends in the boat got there faster. Peter, he raced to Jesus and he was restored into his identity. Everything about the curse that mars the image of God is made new in Christ who allows us to realize our identity. Amen. John chapter 20, verse 22, I think is the high point. Jesus gathers his disciples. He's there in his resurrected body. And even though we've been living under the weight of the curse of sin and death, he breathes on them. Remember Genesis? He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. We're joined together with him. So how do we answer the question, who are we? You are made in God's image. You are made with a purpose. You have dignity. You have a calling. But in your flesh... You are marred by sin. There's still goodness there. The image of God is not fully erased, but it can never be realized in this life as long as you live in sin. But God himself came. He became like you to save you so that you can become like him. So who you are is you are the redeemed, the children of God, restored into your identity and alive in God's Holy Spirit. That's who you are. Next week, you get to celebrate this with baptism. We didn't plan it, I don't think, this way, but just cool that I get to talk about this the week before your baptism bash. Because what does baptism celebrate? It celebrates you going under the water. The old you is dying. And you're being raised to life in the newness of what we just read about, the new humanity that is Jesus Christ. It's not just some ritual that we do, but it's a powerful prophetic statement of who we are. And if you've already been baptized, you should rejoice every time somebody comes up out of the water next week because we're remembering our identity. And if you have not yet been baptized, it looks like you got a few hours to register (laughs) because, man, I cannot think of something more powerful to symbolize who we are than the act of baptism. Amen? Amen. Amen. So here's my challenge to us. What story do we live out of? How do we answer the question, who are we? I want to go back to where I started. We live in a world where there are competing answers to this question. How you answer this question affects everything. Obviously, you've heard my thought, but I want to challenge you. And even as we go into a time of ministry, let's use this as an opportunity to search our heart. Which story defines us? The answer of our world or the answer that we find in scripture? I know for me, I found life in Jesus and I'm just jealous that every single one of us would experience the fullness of his resurrected life that he's called us to. Amen? Let's stand. You know, we always like to end our services with a time of ministry. And the reason we do this is like, yes, we like music. And so we, we always, we have an incredible worship team. We like to give them another chance. But really, <laughs> that's not the main reason we do this. 
The reason we do this is because we don't want to be people that merely hear the word of God. But we want to be people that respond to the word of God. We want what's in scripture. We want who God is to transform us in the way that we live. And so I want to challenge you this morning. Don't walk out of here, especially if there's any sense of conviction, something that God's speaking to you. Don't walk out of here without first taking the opportunity to let God do something inside of you so that we can respond to him. And there are two specific groups of people that I want to challenge this morning and invite to come up for a time of ministry. And our life group leaders and prayer teams, can you guys just make your way up to the front really quickly, be available to pray for people? First group of people are those of you who don't yet know Jesus. And as you hear me describe this story, you recognize that you don't know the God that saved you, that set you free, that became like you to redeem you so that you could become like him. And maybe you grew up around the church. Maybe this is an entirely new concept for you. And here's the cool thing about this story is there is nothing you can do to earn the identity that Jesus has for you. It's a gift. We call it grace. But what you do is you respond to God. You say, God, thank you for making a way for me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. And it becomes a commitment to surrender your life and to walk with him. I mean, it's a huge deal. It's a major commitment. It's not something we take lightly. But I wonder if this morning, if maybe there's people in this room where you just know this is your time. Maybe you've been on the fence for a while. Maybe you walked with God for a season and you've, you've drifted away and you just know this is my day to double down, to make that commitment that I'm all in for Jesus, that I want his life. I'm tired of the answer the world gives me. Maybe that's you. And right now you just feel it. You feel there's something inside of you. It's like, this is my moment. And what I wanna do is we're all gonna just close our eyes for a moment. We're gonna pray. And if you already know Jesus, just pray for our friends that are kind of in that process of decision. But if you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you to him right now. And there is nothing magical about what I'm doing. I'm just facilitating a conversation between you and God. But how we're gonna do this is I'm gonna pray a prayer and I want you to repeat after me. And this is a prayer of surrender to yield your heart to Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, pray something like this. Lord Jesus, just say it out loud. Lord Jesus, I need you. I confess that I have turned my back on you and tried to live my own way. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you rose again so that I can have new life. So today I say, I'm sorry. I repent for my sin. And I proclaim you as Lord of my life. Amen. If you just prayed that, we would love to talk with you. Come tell somebody up here at the front, somebody you came with. Let's talk about baptism. But it's an incredible moment of surrendering our lives to him. Now, for everybody else, I wanna challenge you with the question, what story are you living out of? And as we talk about, like, are we allowing the world's message to define us? Or are we allowing the word of God to define us? I doubt there's a person in this room that's not affected by the world's message in some way. I know I am. And maybe for some of you, you just feel that conviction. And we're gonna take this time of ministry just to let the Lord search our hearts. And if you know right now, you're like, man, I, I need somebody to pray with me. Come on up to the front. Like, don't wait for me to finish talking. We got a few minutes left. Let's pray for each other. Um, you may have some other need. Please don't leave. If you need healing or breakthrough in some area, also please come down to the front. But for everyone else, as we worship, I want you to ask you and challenge you. Invite the Holy Spirit. Search your heart. God, am I living out of the reality of who you've called me to be? Or am I living out of the reality of a lesser story? Amen. So Holy Spirit, search us. God, we want the fullness of our identity in you. 
Lord, nothing less. We want to live out of the reality of who you've created us to be, the fullness of our inheritance. And Lord, I pray as a people, you'd wash over us and make us into your image again. In Jesus' name.